Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, on this week's New Statesman podcast, I, Anusha Alva, discuss the free school's meal round, and you ask us, should journalists have a new code of ethics about how and when they use anonymous sources? So the government has spent most of the last, I was about to say 48 hours, but it will obviously be rather more than that for some of you, and probably about 55 hours for people who are behind the paywall, but have, have spent, you know, a large chunk of the last however many hours struggling to respond to Marcus Rashford's campaign on food poverty in the wake both of Rashford's campaigning and a Labour motion that many Conservative MPs voted against, even the ones who abstained have, have had their inboxes, you know, full of angry voters, with the government kind of looking around basically for a U-turn that, that doesn't erode either of its two big political projects. Anoush, why do you think this has happened, right? I Kind of one of the sort of repeated questions we've got from listeners yeah, via email, via you ask us, sorry, is like basically, why has the government ended up in this mess? It is a really good question. And it's one that a lot of people are asking themselves, because on the surface, it does seem really difficult to understand. So first of all, they're opening themselves up for a lot of opposition from their own benches, as well as from Marcus Rashford's campaign, the Labour Party the councils and businesses and charities that have signed up to Marcus Rashford's campaign, including Tory councils. So they've got opposition on their own side and from um, from other areas. And second of all, they've already conceded on this issue sort of partway, haven't they? Because they U-turned before the summer holiday and, and caved and accepted that they would give free school meal vouchers to children. So they've also admitted that there is a problem that needs to be sort of supported by the government during holidays in this time. So it's difficult to understand why they're digging their heels in now. From hearing from backbenchers and sort of seeing the way that the debate has been played out in media interviews where ministers appear to be sort of defending their position but suggesting that there should be more help via some way which is outside of the voucher system suggests to me that this is because the Conservative government, as charities and food poverty campaigners also know, is that holiday hunger has long been a campaign issue. It's long been a problem. It's long been for years something that the government has been pushed to try and address 
by feeding children over the summer holidays because we know that when they come back after a break, then their educational attainment and academic levels have been set back if they've been hungry during the holidays. So it's a sort of well-known problem. It's a well-established campaign area for charities long before the pandemic. So I think the fear is for the government is that if it does concede to give food vouchers during this half term, Christmas and Easter next year, then it's going to be you know, very difficult to not give vouchers for holidays in in the future because that campaigning already existed before the pandemic. It's achieved all this momentum during the pandemic. So there's no reason that that campaigning is going to go away afterwards. The reason why this is a problem for the government is that it doesn't believe ideologically that this is the best way for families to support their children over the holidays. So Ben Bradley, the MP for Mansfield has come under a lot of criticism for the way that he's opposed Marcus Rashford's campaign. But really, he is just exposing what what the sort of long held conservative view of this issue has always been, which is the argument that it encourages dependency and that, you know, you're sort of outsourcing a family's responsibility to the state. So that's sort of the conservative ideological stance. The reason why that just cannot be is is because we we have record levels of in-work poverty in this country you know I think seven out of ten children I don't know if that's still true but that was the figure I think at the end of last year living in poverty are actually in families that are in work and about a third of universal credit claimants are, are in employment as well so you know if you live in a country where it doesn't pay to work and a benefit system doesn't support you adequately, then of course you don't have the, the resources to, to pull yourself and your children out of hardship. So it's a mistaken way of thinking, but I think that's where the resistance is coming from. And there seems to be a little bit more appetite to try and address the problem or at least try and take the sting out of that, the campaign by using some changes to the benefit system or just funding councils, perhaps in, a, in giving some new funding to councils or passing the responsibility over to councils and doing it in a different way. So there are solutions bubbling under the surface, but what they do betray is just, is just this really stubborn and long-held opposition to vouchers. I mean, I feel like I've heard so many different possible fundamental reasons for not giving into Marcus Rashford's campaign this time. And it's hard to know which one is the fundamental one or the main one in this case. And I suppose the reason why it is hard to get your head around those is because ultimately, like, that reasoning hasn't worked. So like you say, Anoush is the kind of the fundamental ideological objection to the ever-shifting balance between how much individual families are going to be responsible for something and, and how much the state takes on. The fundamental ideological objection there and also the feeling that if you give in again, then this becomes the long-term policy, that you that it's more difficult to walk back this policy at another stage. But I think also it's been suggested to me that The Conservatives did kind of think that within the broader context of, as they see it, huge amounts of public spending to already support people in hardship during this crisis in terms of changes to universal credit and grants and so on. I think that they kind of maybe thought that that would be understood in that context because there would be other things. And in particular, because lots of money has been given to local councils to provide this kind of support if they want to which is the the line that we've seen over the weekend but as I say like the reason that 
I can't say one of those and we all go aha it makes sense is because obviously none of those have worked and they are clearly going to have to do something about this Stephen you wrote morning call today on the government's options really that we are at a point where they want to u-turn and you explained what their options are in terms of doing a u-turn that won't look like a u-turn yeah so it's obviously like option one if you don't want to just like go fine we're going to do what Keir Starmer asked us to do with in his motion we're going to do what we've been specifically asked to do in terms of this one policy which they would prefer not to do not least right because and this I, I think you're exactly right there are so many different reasons why they don't want to do this but one of the kind of central party management problems they have is because they've u-turned so often now whenever something looks a bit dicey like yeah, I have literally seen with my own eyes. Yeah, like, you know, we've, I've been like, you know, talking to like a minister and they've like got the message through from the whips being like, can you like front up X? And they've like, obviously they haven't sent, this is not the excuse they've sent, the excuse they've been sent back is like, you know, I need to see my kids or I'm snowed under with work. But the actual reason is that it's like, we were just going to U-turn on it. I'm going to have like been abused for no reason or I'm going to go viral for no reason or my voters are going to get angry for, with me for no reason and then I'm going to look like a mug when we U-turn. So there are so many reasons why they want to do it from a political perspective, right? But So if you've ruled out trying to do that, you can't do that. Then the, the most obvious, and I think politically, right, if you asked me what I would do, I mean, actually, just what do in general, right? Like you like have a a generous like half-term holiday bonus for parents on UC and then you maybe like have a more generous Christmas bonus than the tenor we give people people now over the Christmas period and that those two things are things that in another universe allow you to go well we haven't done your thing we've done something even better and this shows the flexibility of universal credit but the reason why they want to do that of course isn't universal credit is two political projects in one there's like the actually quite good, slightly more responsive, slightly more intuitive welfare reform than it represents at one level. And then there's the kind of political project of, well, I guess there's two political projects. Oh, there's, there's three. We, yeah, so there's the political project of discomforting Ed Miliband's Labour Party by going, let's have a vote about how like benefit claimants are bad. And if you vote, yes, you'll be attacked from your left, which is good for us. And if you vote no, then we'll attack you, which is good for us. Right. So there's there's that political project. And then there's the Treasury project of cutting spending by any means necessary and using welfare reform as a Trojan horse for doing that. And that means that the kind of the most obvious lever and the lever which would allow you to have like a good story to tell if you were the government about UC is just to increase UC's generosity. But they want to defend the political project of UC being relatively low, both in terms of what we have historically spent on welfare support, but also, you know, in kind of our continental peers levels as well. Right. So that's kind of out, which means you are then kind of left kind of going like, oh, well, what is the thing we can do then then U-turns but doesn't U-turn? And of course, the other sort of subplot here is then in terms of like the stuff Rashford is campaigning on, on the problem of poverty and child hunger in general, he does actually have like a fairly complex, nuanced and serious set of overall proposals and things he wants to look at and campaign on a cross-party basis. So the other factor, which that hasn't doesn't seem to have occurred to any of the people I've spoken to in the government this morning, but certainly has occurred to quite a lot of conservative backbench MPs, is the overall issue isn't going to go away. Mm-hmm. So they also should try and find a U-turn, which allows them to like, if they're not going to resist it, which visibly I think they've shown they do not have the 
energy or the ability to do. Because I think, as you say, Andrew, right, everything Ben Bradley has been like being ratioed on Twitter for saying is I feel the word intellectually feels uniquely ill-suited to what to this sentence but it's intellectually right it's the same argument as the one advanced under Cameron Osborne yeah it's just being done in a kind of deep-seatedly inept way like you know this um yeah it's like to be the new MP for I want to say central Devon saying you know I hope a business which does this isn't going to be asking for government support and it's just like I mean in terms of the underlying ideology, well done. That is the implicit argument. However, wow, you really should not have said that out loud. In Saying that it way. out loud, yeah. Yeah, well, no, you're so right. That's the thing. You know, universal credit as a system is a sort of manifestation of what Ben Bradley's basically been tweeting. You know, the reason why it's paid monthly in arrears, okay, part of that was to make it simpler, but also it's to try and mimic a salaried worker to get people on in households that rely on benefits to budget differently i mean it's like, obviously right it's in terms of government spending it's such a trivial amount of money but i just think you know Alfred, i'm really interested in what you think it's in, like the fact that the government struggles to hold the line when it's like a trivial amount of money when it's something which in terms of the kind of underlying ideology of the project is so central to it i just think if i were rishi sunak and i was looking at the budget i want to be able to pass when this is all over you know i think i'd just quit I think I just do consultancy <laughs> for Morgan Stanley. Yeah, like, yeah, I mean. <laughs> yeah, and I think I suppose the extra strange thing about this is quite how foreseeable it was. I don't think that we have really talked about a political issue in recent weeks that wasn't foreseeable months ago. I mean, in September, you could have seen all of these issues coming up. Like we were talking about a second wave while we were still in the first wave. And, you know, the return to schools, what that would do to the R8, universities, what that might do to the R8, getting track and trace working. And also the fact that we had the issue of free school meals over the summer holidays. And we knew that we would have a second wave and more school holidays where this issue would clearly rear its head again and so I think just the way the government as far as I can tell its policy on this really was we'll give Marcus Rashford an MBE and that'll sort it out because he won't do the same campaign again having had recognition for his first campaign which is clearly lunacy because I think once you've not only given in on the issue of free school meals the first time after a U-turn but you've given credence to to the idea that that's actually a really worthwhile cause and that Marcus Rashford conducted a very important service over the summer by being a voice for hungry children who needed extra support over the holidays. Like once you've given into that argument and said, cheers, Marcus, great job. You can be a, you know, a member of the British Empire. Then you've just made it more politically difficult for yourself. I, th- I find it there's a kind of dark humor to it that, I have had people say to me, but, you know, we gave him an MBE. We didn't think that this would happen. And, you know, they've just sort of dug dug the hole a bit deeper. I mean, I think that actually maybe if I were in government, perish the thought, that would be my way of resolving this, that, like, I would definitely get Marcus Rashford involved and would have had him involved in government policy on child hunger from the summer. So whatever the government did or didn't do would have Marcus Rashford's involvement and input in it. 
so we wouldn't really have got to this point that you would be sort of allowing him to chair a task force and and looking into this issue. If I if I were a conservative government, if I if I were helping another government, I would just have free school meals all year round. I mean, yeah. So I had a conversation this morning with a conservative MP who they were just like they were like, what genius would look at like the difficult row we had last time and go, do you know what would make it even better on round two? would be if we'd given him an MB, if they were like, what we should do is do it. So now he has like the cross party imprimatur of national treasure status. They were just like, yeah, they were like, why would we want to do this? Like, but it speaks to one of the things that we've kind of only touched on sort of intermittently isn't the new sort of in doctrine in the Conservative Party and among kind of like Downing Street adjacent thinkers is this argument that like there are too many quangos which are appointed, which have lefties on top of them. Cameron didn't do enough to reverse this. He appointed a bunch of lefties, etc, etc. And then this is like fixing this is going to unlock a sort of new era of highly effective conservative government. But actually, it's the other way around, because exactly as you say, Alva, right, the sensible thing to do is to like, you go, Marcus Rashford, he's head of our food strategy thing, Emmy Bobby. The hilarious thing is actually, like, I think Henry Dimbleby is doing a great job as chair of the food strategy stuff. But it kind of means that with Henry Dimbleby, they have the worst of all worlds in and they have someone who is a Tory, who is deeply critical of government policy, and means they cannot outsource the blame to anyone else, right? Like, he's just like, it's like, well done, guys. You have everything that you could possibly hate about this situation that's happened. Whereas, like, when you had, say, academy schools appointing, you know, Sally Morgan to her role at Offset, right? Appointing Alan Milburn to do social mobility, appointing Simon Stevens to be head of NHS England. That is not going, oh, ooh, there, are, there are a bunch of lefties subverting the government's agenda. That's going, okay, I'm David Cameron. I want to do some fairly radical stuff. So I'm going to pick out the people who I agree with on the other side to give myself a kind of breadth and to strengthen my governing project. And instead, of course, we have this kind of like, you know, well, let's give these roles to you know people who are aligned to us, like Henry Dimbledy or Prue Leith on the kind of case of food strategy and food poverty. In those cases, of course, those people then quit anyway, or at least, you know, continue to do their jobs in, as I say, I think a very good way, but in a way that doesn't really help them with the underlying project. It does really speak to their sort of central problems. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. Question about private polling and focus groups 
are telling us briefings and generally with number 10 source messages. What steps can journalists slash reporters take to make sure they're not being used to amplify a political message rather than the true picture? Is there a need for a new code of ethics for journalism to deal with the social media age when politicians and other political actors aren't always acting in good faith? Ironically, this question comes from someone who hasn't left their name. <laughs> but um, Anoush, like me, you're, you know, ravaged and old. What do you think about this question? Mm, I think it's a good question, and it comes around. We disagreed that you're ravaged and old, and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well, luckily this is a podcast, so nobody can see. <laughs> no, no, I do think it's a good question, and it comes around every now and again. Usually at a time when government briefings are sort of rapid and increasingly desperate, and the regular reader or the regular social media user notices that journalists are doing a lot of quoting of anonymous sources and number 10 spokespeople or whoever it is who's not sort of referred to by their actual name and wondering how the process works behind the scenes, but also getting frustrated because it sounds like the journalist is maybe parroting a line that they're being fed rather than interrogating it. And I think that's a that is a particular danger on social media, because if you include an anonymous source in a piece, if you're a good reporter or if you're doing fair analysis, then you will have used that that quote in a wider context of, of whether or not, you know, it's disingenuous or whether or not it represents a certain faction in the government or the opposing party or whoever. And you're sort of picking it apart by the fact that you've got a piece around it to give it context. Whereas if you're just tweeting out a line that you've been sent from someone on social media, it's still useful because, you, you know, you're, you're getting something out there that betrays what the thinking is inside a certain party or group. But there's no space on Twitter for any sort of meaningful analysis around it. So it might look like you're platforming it rather than using it in order to inform your own political analysis and also the information that you're giving to your readers or your viewers. So I see why it's a frustration for people to be reading anonymous quotes in that context. And I also think that it's a bit of the, the whole sort of system and the code of the system is quite confusing. I remember when I was quite young and I just started working in the lobby for a magazine called Total Politics. And I was writing a story, I think, about Sadiq Khan. And I actually, you know, got an anonymous quote from someone about him. I can't remember what the actual story was from a friend of his, someone who was a personal friend of his. So I wrote, a friend of Sadiq Khan tells me, da da da. And then I got this furious message from Sadiq Khan's political advisor saying, I didn't say this, you know. <laughs> and I was like, well, no, I know. It was a friend of <laughs> a friend of Sadiq Khan. And actually, he was very frustrated because friend of Sadiq Khan in sort of lobby speak or journalese would usually mean an ally, most likely his political advisor or someone in his close political team. I didn't or know that because Sadiq I was Sadiq Khan new. himself. Yes, or Sadiq Khan <laughs> himself. I mean, I wasn't connected <laughs> enough for that to have been the case back then. I, 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 you know, and it was annoying for me because I'd actually just got this quote sincerely from someone who was a friend of his. All of those little bits of code, you know, what does friend mean? What does ally mean? What does, who's the close circle? What's the difference between a, a number 10 spokesperson and a government spokesperson, what's the difference between a genuine quote that you've got from the inside that tells you something about what's going on inside or a quote sort of that you've been given by a government department when you're asking them to sort of react to a story. So so what's the difference between an official line and a line that's being given to you because you're, you know, you're well connected with someone inside somewhere. So those kind of things are, I think, 
if they're confusing to the journalists themselves, then then they're inevitably going to be confusing to the people who are consuming the journalism. So I do think that there is a case for trying to make it a little bit clearer who's saying what. I completely agree with you, Anush, that the fundamental problem is when people allow the official line, normally from number 10, to masquerade as something anonymous that isn't being billed as the official line. I'm drawing a blank on what I think is the actual impetus for this question. I can't remember what it was that several senior lobby journalists tweeted recently. It was a sort of a line from a number 10 source, a kind of very spiky rebuttal to something Labour had done. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was kind of, it was quite rude. And I can't remember if it accused the Labour leadership of lying or something like that, but it was a really sort of punchy quote, but it was just from a conservative source or something like that. And it was the worst example of this kind of thing. And it wasn't just, you know, the the person that people always criticize for doing this. It was like actually quite a lot of journalists doing this, quoting it, like tweeting it out. That was the worst example of this kind of thing because it was allowing what was basically the official government line on that issue to masquerade as something less than official. I think that if people want to have to have a line like that and put that out via official channels, like through all the main political editors, then like that is your de facto official line on something. But it's a sort of a mechanism that I think number 10 does use quite a bit of sort of getting punchier lines and like slightly more disingenuous lines of attack out into the public domain without having to own them as the official government position. I think that's a huge problem and people rightly get very annoyed about it um, when they see it happening on Twitter. Um, And so I think that that's what the question is really like getting at. And I'm not really sure what could be done about it in terms of a code of ethics, because having said everything I've just said, I actually, in more general terms, don't really have a problem with people speaking off record. And I actually, to be honest, I think it's interesting that this question talks about client journalism as, you know, reporters being sort of used to amplify a political message because I don't think, I think that's an interesting definition of it. And I think basically, I don't massively have a problem with something like that. I think the problem is if you're, if you're serving one client rather than all the others. But I think that most political journalists are just kind of trying to convey the different perspectives of different political actors and trying to do so fairly, which will mean amplifying their various messages. And often... Stephen, you like feel free to correct this if the, if it isn't really the case, but clearly, like people will notice in your journalism that you very rarely quote people. It's more like you can see that it is informed by a lot of off record and background conversations, and that doesn't result in client journalism. It just means that people have been rather than sort of speaking in kind of sort of stilted official quotes that have to be, you know checked by a million people the people just sort of speak frankly to you and explain their positions and then the new statesman's political editor conveys those without having to beat around the bush with quotes so I basically don't really have a problem with stuff being off record or people being used to amplify particular messages I suppose like the way that's worded makes it sound bad but like I think that 
that whole ecosystem makes total sense to me as long as people are doing it fairly. It's a just a particular problem with official lines that I think needs to change. But what do you think, Stephen? So I actually don't have any kind of problem with the like message goes out to poleds or goes out to like the weird like gradations of like groups where you try and slightly backfill like so how am I defined by this new Downing Street kind of thing where you get like a like a conservative source or a Downing Street source has said yada 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 because broadly I don't believe that there is a reader or a viewer out there who when they see like Labour has said something a senior conservative source or a Downing Street source has said like something mean they go yeah that's the official response isn't it right like then actually the government doesn't have plausible deniability i think there is a a distinct problem on twitter then because this is like a thing that i think we all get wrong occasionally right then your tweets even when they're in a thread which is why i'm trying to wean myself off doing threads like exist exist separately to one another they get retweeted and they become decontextualized so you you cannot i think ever really successfully quote a line on twitter on its own and caveat it in a way that you aren't just acting as broadcast but i think like the downing street stuff is fine because everyone understands if downing streets are something critical of the labor party well it's like well they would wouldn't they what i think is a problem is when you have this was particularly acute during the the Corbyn era. Yeah, we had kind of people saying something like a Labour source has said the party will tomorrow declare that every man of woman born must be nationalised. And you're like, is that really a Labour source? Or do you mean a disgruntled backbencher? Or like a shadow minister? Like, you know, to put it bluntly, right, there's, there's, there's quite a big gap in terms of a shadow minister. What do you mean like John Trickett or Diane Abbott? Or do you mean like, Keir Starmer, Emily Thornbury, John Ashworth, or ditto, you know, and I'm deliberately avoiding use, using the current telecabinet makeup because every time I, I identify where people exist on the right-left spectrum, someone whines to me about it, which I guess is an ex- example of actual client journalism when you start going, oh, I'm not going to do this because I just cannot be bothered with the kvetching and the holding back of my, one's ability to do one's job properly. Because I think the thing is, is, is with a lot of like intra-party beef, a lot of the time I think the onus is is on you to balance the very important work of source protection with the equally important thing of conveying where a division actually exists. I think we saw this also very acutely with Brexit, right, where it would feel to me that a lot of people would would report like, you know, Parliament inches closer to second referendum as X says so and so. I'd look at it and think, I'm pretty sure I know who that's from. And they've always backed a second referendum. Yeah, like, please call me when, you know, Caroline Flint or Yvonne Favag or someone who's against it goes, actually, I've decided I'm, I'm for it. And this is why I think in some ways the issue is an ethics, it's quality. I know that sounds very prissy, but like, so let's take, so for example, something I've written up recently about the fact that now, so Downing Street's focus groups, basically they say, say then, yeah, we're unhappy with you. We think you've been incompetent. We think you're handling the pandemic pretty badly, but we don't think anyone else would have handled it better. For me, at least, when I am told that, that is a useful thing for me to know. But I then when I sit down and write something, I have to think, okay, so this is what I'm being briefed. What are they actually doing? And does that match? So, for example, Downing Street claimed incessantly during the row about them using the term surrender bill, that the focus groups loved it, that the wet liberals need to shut up and they were going to keep doing it. 
But at the same time as they were saying, we're going to keep doing it, they were pivoting to get Brexit done. Now, so the difference is, is, is I think, even though I have not sat in on Downing Street's focus groups, I believe when they say that, that is true. And I believe that for a number of reasons, not least the fact that all of the other parties think that's the case too. And you can see that both in terms of, yeah, I think you don't have to have private conversations with any of the people involved to see that the other parties are in England. I mean, obviously, one of the central problems the government has is that voters in Scotland do not think that any party would have handled it as badly as the Conservatives do. Thinking the SNP would have handled it better in an independent Scotland. And that is one of the reasons why support for independence is going up. But everything the Labour Party and the Conservatives do indicates that the, that it is true to say that Conservative focus groups show that. And then it is Although I have had discussions with people in Labour Party about what they, their focus groups say, even without having to have that conversation, you can kind of guess, right, Then that's broadly what theirs shows. And then you'll occasionally see something, someone saying like, so-and-so says that their private polling shows that this line that they are visibly backpedalling away from faster than you can say Jack Robinson. <laughs> you know, or like, you know, people going like, Dom Cummings is hard as nails and never panics. And it's just like, ah. So was it a different Dom Cummings who was saying to the Brexiteers, if you don't vote for the meaningful vote, Brexit will be destroyed. Please, you can't take this from me. Because that looks to me like panicking and also looks like it was, um, what's that word, wrong and predictably so. And so when you do that kind of thing wrong in an analytical sense, you just have an analysis which doesn't work. And when you do that kind of thing wrong in a reported sense, you just end up like reporting claims that are not credible and giving any you know, kind of and not sort of caveating them in the appropriate way and i know it's never helpful to say look actually there is no code of ethics and gets you around like just being competent and like engaging with what you've been told in a critical sense mm. oh yeah like to take another example right so something which i know to be true which was the the when the lib dems tested their revoke policy it did incredibly well in groups like, yeah, just it, it landed incredibly well in the groups. But it obviously, you know, landed like the challenger in like in, in the real world, right? And so there's no kind of code of ethics. Like there is obviously a problem of like, are you engaging in like are you ending up running interference for okay, it didn't matter because the Lib Dem leadership lost its seat. But if our let's say Joe Swinson had got a thousand extra Tory tactical votes to stop the SNP. There would have been an almighty row in the Lib Dem party about whether or not she needs to stand down. To what extent are you protecting your access, engaging in client journalism, or simply reflecting the truth to go, well, look, they did test it. And there's, yeah, there's no code of ethics that gets you around that. I, I do think, however, the one thing that I think is absolutely true, and I do think, and I say this obviously as someone who, you know, I holds no brief for Jeremy Corbyn in particular, but ultimately the way that a lot of outlets would go a Labour source has said, and it's like, you don't mean a Labour source. You mean one side on an incredibly bitterly contested civil war. And this is why, quite literally, the reason why the word Corbyn sceptic was invented was to give us a word that allowed us to, to convey that in a way that protected the source's identity, but conveyed that there was a civil war inside the Labour Party. And I think that is problematic. And to me, is something you can have a simple, like, not even such a code of ethics, a code of like, are we conveying the reality of and this thing, the test I always try and run with myself, and I tend to avoid quotes because people can identify the source. And I and also I, I'm deeply conceited and don't like other people eating into my word count with their own imperfectly chosen words. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I just always think an iron test of have you done this right is if 
it were to be magically revealed who all of these people's names were, would the reader's impression of the story change in a negative way? Now, there's some cases like, I mean, you know, a while ago, you know, someone getting very cross with me at a party conference about something where they were like, well, I don't think this is how the leadership thinks. And obviously, I, despite the fact it was conference, and it was very late, and I therefore had had a bit to drink, I obviously gave into did not give into the urge to grab this person by by his labels and go, well, they told me so. So actually, it does come from the leadership. But that obviously would change how you read it, but it would change it in a positive sense, because you would take the story even more seriously. But a lot of the time, I think it's a problem when you read something, and you go, oh, minister, oh, they must be well connected to Theresa May. Oh, no, there's someone who hates her and who is only there because she's too weak to sack them. That is, I think, much more problematic than like someone doing essentially a kind of like shift F7 way of like a Tory source said they don't like the Labour Party or vice versa. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, our Britain editor, Anusha Kellyan, and our political correspondent, Alva Ray. If you're enjoying the New Statesman podcast, please do leave a favourable review on your podcast subscriber. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together, we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.